With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Nina Schick. On this week's podcast, as the U.S. presidential election moves ever closer and with the numbers seemingly stacked against him, we ask if and how Donald Trump can secure a second term in the White House. UCL politics professor Dr. Julie Norman joins us to discuss the campaign ahead and the impact of a Trump victory or defeat on the Western world. The poisoning of prominent Putin critic Alexei Navalny has sparked outrage across both the West and in Russia itself. Is Vladimir Putin behind this? And following anti-lockdown demonstrations in both London and Berlin over the weekend, we'll take a look at how the far right is using the COVID pandemic to strengthen its ranks. All this and more in today's Bunker. Welcome back to the Bunker. Before we start, a quick reminder that we're hosting another Bunker vs. Romaniacs live Zoom on Thursday, the 24th of September at 8 p.m. It's open to all our Patreon backers and ticket holders for our postponed live show at the Lesser Square Theatre. So search Patreon Bunker to find out more and sign up. Now, let's meet today's panel. First up, making his Bunker debut, we have writer and editor Justin Quirk. Hi, Justin. How's it going? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. It's um, great for making my auspicious debut today. So thank you for uh, thank you for having me. That's great. It's great to have you, uh, Justin. The new BBC boss Tim Davy came out yesterday warning comedians not to joke about Brexit and the government, or I'll say risk being axed. Most comedians are left wing. So what do you think right wing comedy looks like? It's a really interesting question. I mean, obviously, um, stand up has always largely been the preserve of left-leaning comedians for all kinds of reasons. You know, there's issues about personality type, you know, the whole ecosystem of comedy audiences. Although people who are, again, outside of that, who aren't doing Ben Elton in the 80s material, you know, like Mickey Flanagan or whatever, are all over the BBC. So it's not like there's some moratorium on these things. But the more you look at it, and particularly in terms when you get into things like dramatic comedy, this whole kind of binary debate falls to pieces when you try and categorise comedies in those ways. So when you look through what's on the iPlayer at the moment, is Mrs Brown's boys left-wing or right-wing? Well, you could say, okay, it's a very traditional show, it's about working-class culture, it's quite broad comedy, but it's also very inclusive towards sort of gay characters and women as a very sort of moral core. Was Dad's Army left-wing or right-wing? You know, it's celebrating World War II, you know, our finest hour, but it's clearly... A satir, you know, satirising the ruling class there. Where would you put Blackadder? And it sort of feels like you can't really do it. It's not really a substantive discussion because ultimately I think what the Telegraph wants isn't more 
right-wing comedy and right-wing comedians. They just want the opportunity to feel like an oppressed minority. So I'm afraid it's going to be one, another one of those unedifying discussions, which we'll have for about a week, and then I sense we'll blow over into something else. <laughs> well, also joining us is former diplomat and Foreign and Commonwealth Office mover and shaker, Arthur Snell. Hi, Arthur. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good, good. Arthur, Saturday's poll by opinion saw Labour and the Tories level for the first time since July 2019. From 26 points behind to neck and neck in five months, how would you rate Keir Starmer's job so far? Well, on the basis of that poll, I should probably be saying he's done an amazing job. But I think probably even Keir Starmer himself would admit that a lot of that is the government doing it for him uh, in that you've seen a clearly incompetent government uh, really struggling with the coronavirus. And at the beginning, obviously, everyone was willing to sort of give them a bit of a free pass. But it's now very obvious that if you just look at the numbers compared to other countries with similar sized populations, we've done very badly in this country. Mm. So I think a lot of that is, is you know, that is where Keir Starmer's, um, you know, climb in the poll has come from. But let's be clear, you know, he is very obviously a highly competent, intelligent, sensible. He doesn't come across as having this sort of huge baggage of, of, of excessive ideology. And I think people have forgotten what it's like to have someone else they can look at and think, yeah, he could be prime minister, no reason why he shouldn't be. Whereas, except for a very few people, they looked at Jeremy Corbyn, and I think most people couldn't believe he could be prime minister. So I guess that's what it is. It's a mixture of the government doing his job for him and, and him just not looking like an idiot. <laughs> and it doesn't look like Johnson's job is going to get any easier. In the months ahead, we've got the winding down of the furlough scheme, a COVID winter and a probable hard Brexit. So what issue do you think will cause Johnson the biggest headaches? Well, if I had to pick one, I think I'll, I'll pick the COVID winter. And that's because if you if you talk to public health experts... I'm married to one, so I do every day. Uh, they say that the winter is going to be really bad. And uh, I think the public have not really got their heads around this. I think there was this sort of almost a kind of buzz around the the early lockdown that we, you know, we can all get shoulder to shoulder and sort of make this thing go away. Uh, but I, I fear that, you know, unless there's some really major development in terms of treatment or vaccine, we're going to have a really, really tough sort of rerun of the previous uh, outbreak, but at a time when, you know, the days are short, the weather isn't nice, it's just not the same thing. So I think that's going to be really bad. But clearly, if you put those together with the hard Brexit and, and the end of the furlough, yeah, it's going to be some tough months ahead, I'm afraid. Our special guest this week is another member of our unofficial US election desk. She's currently a professor at UCL, where she lectures in globalism and populism and also hosts her own podcast. But right now, she's here on the bunker. Welcome to the show, Dr. Julie Norman. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on the show. <laughs> well, one of your main areas of focus is security in the Middle East. The recent events in Lebanon shocked the world, but the country has just appointed a new prime minister ambassador to Germany, Mustafa Adib. Do you think this will prove to be a good move, Julie? 
Well, you know, right now, Mustafa Adib is a pretty relative unknown for most Lebanese, but a lot of opposition groups already see him as really just another figure of the old elite political class and as someone who probably won't be able to bring about the deep changes that most Lebanese citizens feel is needed and just assume that he'll run into the same kind of roadblocks that his predecessor did. But, you know, with that said, Lebanon is in such a crisis situation right now that there does need to be some kind of functional government to start engaging with the international community, starting to rebuild from the blast and starting to stabilize the economy. And you know, there's a chance that with so much international focus on Lebanon now, that it might be able to overcome at least some of the challenges that his predecessor struggled with. Mm-hmm. And one kind of leading proponent of that international focus was Emmanuel Macron, who was in Lebanon trying to help form a new political pact. What do you think the priorities of the new government need to be? Yeah, well, first and foremost will be the recovery and the reconstruction after the explosion. And along with that, trying to start some kind of international criminal investigation to get some accountability for what happened. But looking more in the moderate to longer term, Lebanon, even before the blast, was in a real dire economic and financial crisis. So the next big step is going to be economic reform and financial restructuring. And for even many Lebanese uh, inside, even many protesters realize that will probably include resuming negotiations with the IMF just to get some kind of stability there. But the bigger, harder part of all of this is going to be trying to restructure the political system itself. Many Lebanese have been protesting since the fall of last year to try and undo the very sectarian political system that has reigned in Lebanon for quite a while and trying to route out a lot of the corruption and nepotism that's linked to that. But that's a huge challenge, and it's one that will require at least some Mm buy-in from many of the politicians who are, quite honestly, benefiting very much from that system right now. So it'll be hard to see how that's going to move forward. We begin by making a return trip across the pond to America, following the end of the Republican National Convention. After an event which saw his entire family get the chance to speak, Donald Trump rounded off proceedings on Thursday evening. In front of the White House and a crowd of maskless supporters, he declared that if Joe Biden won November's election, he would be the destroyer of American greatness. But with recent polls indicating that a sizable majority of Americans fancy a Biden presidency, how could Trump claim a second term in the White House? And what would his victory or demise mean for the Western world? Julie, Trump was in attack mode on Thursday, calling Biden a Trojan horse for socialism, claiming his opponent had spent his entire career on the wrong side of history, and that he would give free reign to violent anarchists. Which, if any of these attack lines, do you think will work with the general public? Well, Trump will be using all of these lines moving forward, and some will resonate with others and kind of depending on what's happening in the U.S. We'll definitely expect to see him pushing this idea that Biden and the Democratic Party um, more largely is just you know, radical leftists pushing very socialist agendas and trying to use that language a lot to paint Biden in that light. And alongside that, also trying to suggest that Biden and, again, the Democrats in general 
you represent a kind of decline or rejection of American values. And that that message and that rhetoric is one that has worked for Trump in the past and, and that we expect him to double down on. But you know what we're seeing right now this week, of course, is really this emphasis on Trump trying to frame himself as the law and order president in contrast to Biden, who he's saying is, you know, turning a blind eye to the violence of the protests, really trying to paint the protests as anarchist mobs, and really trying to use a lot of that fear-mongering language and trying to, again, say that he would be the opposite to that, bring a sense of law and order to a current chaos. Again, depending on where one is on in America, you know, that just seems there were many who automatically reject that message, but it will resonate with many. And we've already seen you know, some shifts in support for Black Lives Matter and for protests since Trump started using this kind of messaging. Well, I guess that kind of preempts what I was going to ask you next about, you know, Trump has this base, loyal base of about 40%. And a lot of his rhetoric, um, unsurprisingly, seems to be aimed at his supporters. But do you think this law and order message that he's been doubling down on could appeal more widely? Um, Do do you see a, a shift to Trump because of this law and order message? Again, it certainly can. And what we've already seen is that opposition to the Black Lives Matter protests has increased about 10 percentage points from 28% earlier in the summer or shortly after George Floyd's murder to about 38% now, um, even while support has has maintained at, at pretty much the same level. So what we're seeing is that many people who may be ambivalent to the protests mm-hmm. are now actually opposing them or seeing them as dangerous. But what might be crucial here is to what extent Biden and the Democrats can push back at that kind of messaging from Trump. You know, Biden came out yesterday with you know, probably his most pointed speech on this issue. Um, he was speaking in Pittsburgh and really trying to just take Trump's criticisms head on and say the real candidate here who's causing concerns around safety is Trump. He's the one who is stoking the tensions who is not condemning violence. Biden was very clear in that speech how he was condemning violence on both sides and really trying to get that message. So Trump will keep pushing his message as always, but it really is crucial that the Democrats try and push back at that as well. So what do you actually think is the bigger problem for Biden? Is it you know courting the progressive left of his own party or trying to get the swing voters, do you see a potential where he could go much the way that Kamala Harris's presidential campaign went, arguably, when he tried to be something for everyone, and it ended up tripping her up? Do you think that's a real risk for Biden? Well, that is certainly the challenge. And of course, Democrats will be trying to learn the lessons from 2016 to make sure that they are getting out their own votes, even while attacking Trump and and criticizing Trump. So for Biden right now, it really is crucial to make sure that while he is rightly pushing back at the president, that he's also still, you know, pushing his own agenda saying what he will stand for in a way that resonates enough to get voters out or to get them voting. Um, But, you know, we know from the past that so much of the U.S. election comes down to certain swing states. Mm -hmm. A lot of those states are in the Midwest, in the Rust Belt, and that's where he needs to make sure he can keep 
some of those more moderate voters, especially some of the white working class voters who switched from pretty traditional democratic voting to voting for Trump in the last election. Justin, let's talk about the polls, which have been notorious over the last four years. But Biden seems to be leading in the swing in the swing states. However, it's less than what Hillary Clinton's was at this stage four years ago. In Pennsylvania, he has a lead of 5.8 percent um, at this point four years ago, Clinton had a lead of 9.2 in Pennsylvania. So how worried do you think the Democrats should be looking at those polling figures? I think there's a few things to differentiate. I think firstly, you'd have to say, yes, obviously, you would be stupid not to be worried because it's a two horse race. And I think we saw with the, uh, the Comey letter in 2016, how drastically and significantly a finger can be put on the scales for either candidate by one kind of black swan like that coming in. So yes, obviously they should be concerned. But what I'd also say is that there is a lot to unpack in all these numbers. There are so many polls going around at the moment. And there's more sort of signal, you know, it's uh, the sort of signal to noise ratio is not great on them. Most numbers this time around, though, I think the crucial thing is that they seem to show far fewer undecided. So you know, post-convention in 2016, I think we had around 16% of voters were undecided. That's tightened to about 7% this time. Um, there's no significant third-party candidate who's going to peel votes away from the Democrats. So while some of the numbers are tighter, there's also fewer people in play, um, which I think is something to sort of focus on. And I think there's also a, a media desire for a horse race here leading to some really bad polling getting seized upon. There was a JP Morgan poll at the weekend, which frankly was deranged. I mean, it was sort of mapping terms from kind of Google search trends onto sort of other things. I mean, it was it was really methodologically all over the place. 538, who are obviously, you know, they're pretty far across all of the trustworthy, significant polling, are reporting relatively little movement in the polls yet. They're still leaning to a Biden probable victory. And I think, you know, one of the few advantages of such a polarising candidate as Trump is that most people have a fixed view at this point. So I can see why they're jumpy. um, And I understand that. But I think, you know, we're constantly trying to sort of map changes and sort of micro changes onto a very, very febrile landscape. So it feels like it's very sort of hard to call at the moment. But I think all these numbers should be taken with quite a uh, pinch of salt at the moment. Yeah, and, and the Democrats presumably are taking nothing for granted after, you know, the, the shock of 2016. Do you think we're seeing an extreme pessimism in the Democratic Party? Or do you think they're invigorated by the desire to remove Trump from office? I think I think pessimism is the right word. I, I think 2016 was an existential trauma for the Democrats. You know, they put up a candidate they'd been building up to for decades who was by, you know, by any measure, the most qualified person to run against Trump. There were, you know, interference, manipulation, whatever, but they managed still managed to lose in those circumstances. I think that was really was an existential level trauma. And, you know, they're right not to take anything for granted because there's still a lot of variables. And I think there's an argument that pessimism is healthy and sensible in that they need to motivate people to act like they're 10 points behind. Because the crucial thing this is going to come down to is turnout. I think if there's any suggestion that the results are close or contestable, they will be litigated to the end of the earth Mm. by the Republicans. Um, I'd be amazed if they didn't try that. So Trump not just losing, but 
losing badly is important for two things. Firstly, just for getting the results over the line, but also in terms of the future presence of the Trumps in American public life. You know, America has a very low tolerance for people who lose badly. And I think in terms of we don't want to be back here in four years' time watching, you know, one of his somewhat ragbag sons, you know, running up against the uh, AOC. Um, so I think for the for the purposes of drumming the Trumps out of public life as hard as possible, uh, losing big is very, very important. Yeah, I mean, and uh, what seems to be coming through loud and clear is that, you know, the actual election does not end it, depending on the margin of victory or defeat. You know, Trump may still be trying to contest the election. Arthur, do you think the RNC will be behind him in any efforts to, let's say he loses narrowly, that they would be behind him in trying to claim that he's still the victor? Well, that's... We keep being told that, you know, the Republicans are going to come to their senses and they realize that Trump is is not somebody who is helping their party in the long term interest. And of course, Trump wasn't historically a Republican Party activist or member. And so we keep being told that the Republicans at some point will jettison Trump and return to being more of a kind of mainstream conservative movement. However, thus far, Barring a few sort of breakaways, the, the mainstream Republicans have stuck with him and they've mm-hmm. enabled him and they've covered for him. So I'm not at all optimistic. I, I mean, I defer to others. Julie will know more about this, but I'm not at all optimistic that the Republicans faced with a narrow, uh, a narrow result in either, in either direction will, will sort of find their responsible gene and return mm-hmm. to being kind of normal politicians rather than indulging in this kind of hyper-partisan, extremely destructive politics that we're seeing at the moment. No, no, I tend to agree with you. Um, And I suppose, Arthur, with your geopolitics hat on, um, assuming Trump wins or Biden wins, what does that mean for America's place in the world? What does this election mean for America's place in the world? And do you think that any candidate, whether it's Trump or Biden, can really kind of reinvigorate, I suppose this question is more important for Biden being the victor, can reinvigorate kind of the leadership of the US and the world? Or is this just the inevitable decline? I I don't think it is inevitable, because the thing we need to remember is that, as well as Biden looking you know, according to the polls, in spite of my pessimism and and so on, in spite of what I've just been saying, Biden looks like he's winning. But also, the Senate looks up for grabs. It's, I'm I'm not going to uh, you know say that I know that the Democrats can seize the Senate, but it certainly is not out of the realm of possibility. Whereas a few months ago, people would have said that's unlikely. Why is that important? Because that gives a lot of opportunity for kind of big policy stances on the part of President Biden. And if you look at uh, Obama's difficulty, was that except for the first two years, uh, he, didn't, he didn't have full control of Congress. Mm-hmm. And, and increasingly, you know, he had this very uh, sort of confrontational and dysfunctional relationship with a Republican-controlled Congress. So I think if Biden manages, comes out of this with a Senate that is Democrat, even if it's only by one vote, uh, also obviously the House of Representatives, which looks pretty solid for the Blues, and, and obviously the White House, then I think you could see a big change. And the fact is that 
there is no evidence that the majority of the American people want this kind of America first, hard right isolationism that Trump is pushing. The reason he's pushing it is because the particular structure of American politics means that he can win an election on that basis. Julie, by the time this podcast is released, Donald Trump will have visited Kenosha, the Wisconsin city which witnessed the tragic shooting of Jacob Blake last week. Tensions remain high, but the situation has settled down to become more peaceful in recent days. With Wisconsin being a swing state, how could his visit affect things both electorally and on the ground? Yeah, well, you know, Trump's visit to Kenosha, even before its occurrence, has been very controversial. Um, the governor of the state, as well as the mayor of Kenosha, have you know expressed concerns about him coming, have asked him not to come or to delay his visit, simply because he has been so um, so controversial and so inciting on this issue. You know, normally a city like this would welcome a president to come and kind of give a you know a message of solidarity reconciliation but that's just not something we can expect from Trump um you know Electorally, how this plays out, you know, we're still several months away from the election. Things will probably quiet in Wisconsin by then. Of course, this issue will continue to be high on the minds of voters, but you know, a lot of Wisconsin voters in particular will be voting on the economy, on the situation of COVID as well. Um, so 12 black speakers featured at the RNC in support of Trump. Yet only one senior White House staffer, Jerome Smith, and one cabinet secretary, Ben Carson, are African-American. Given the importance of race relations in the context um, of this election, do you think that Trump can really fight Biden on race issues? You know, what we've seen Trump do is actually try and at least rhetorically reach out a little bit more to, you know, potential voters of color. And he actually has a slightly higher percentage point support from both black voters and Latino voters in this polling as compared to 2016. But, you know, I think the appearances at the convention by people of color was also partly to allow Trump to underscore for you know, white voters that vote for Trump is not necessarily a racist vote. You know, Mm -hmm. Trump essentially has black friends too. And so it was a way to kind of reassure Trump voters that you aren't racist by voting for Trump because look at who is there. Um, But, you know, Trump, again, he's very savvy on some of these issues. He is quick to say that he's not a racist, but at the same time, you know, it's there in a lot of his policies and a lot of his rhetoric. But what he has been able to do is tap into a lot of more class-based grievances, suggest to some of his supporters that the overemphasis on or the perceived overemphasis on race is, you know, to, um, you know, overshadowing the real grievances based on class. And again, just constantly hammering this law and order drum, which, you know, for many is kind of a a side way to take on race-based issues, but to position it in a way that benefits him. It feels like this election is being um, contested on the most polarizing background ever when it comes to the history of U.S. elections. And I'll open this up for everyone. Um, What are your thoughts on whether America can handle four more years of Trump? You know, can it? Can can the world? And um, I'll start with you, Julie. Yeah, well, you know, there's kind of three main ways to look at this. I'd say one is just the policies that Democrats worry that Trump will impose or continue to impose 
The second is the way that Trump might damage or continue to damage democratic institutions and norms. And the third is really the rending of the social fabric in the United States. And for me, it's really that last point, the fact that the way that Trump operates his rhetoric, his use of language, his very combative stance is really just devastating for America's social fabric on top of all the more larger concerns we have around his policies and politics. What do you think, Arthur? Well, I, I won't add to what Julia said on the American side because, you know, I, I don't know the country as well as she does. But I think if we look at the global impact, I, I think it would be a, a terrible thing. I think over this last four years, what you've seen is Trump has been held back, often by really tiny uh, interventions of people sort of removing paperwork from his desk, literally, that would have resulted in major geopolitical changes. I, I think it'll be much harder for that to happen, partly because the grown-ups who joined the Trump administration at the beginning have all mostly disappeared now. So I think it, it'll be Trump unchained, and, and we'll see severe impacts on, on the global order, particularly things such as NATO, uh, long-standing alliances that, that, that have sort of sustained global security also in, in East Asia and so on. Justin? Um, I would largely agree with Arthur that I think it would be a profoundly sort of dangerous and depressing time. But I think also we need to be careful not to fixate overly on one person here. You know, And I think even if Trump loses in the forthcoming election – getting rid of Trump doesn't discharge Trumpism from the body politic. You know, as much as America has a Trump problem, it also has a voter problem in that a not insignificant number of people have shown that they want what he's offering. And those people are not just going to evaporate in November. They have to be brought back into the political process, you know, within democratic norms where they can, or, you know, this has to be addressed as an issue. It's not going to go away when he does. Moving on and over in Russia, things have taken a serious turn in the fight for democracy. Last week, the prominent Putin critic and pro-democracy activist Alexei Navalny was flown to Germany after suddenly falling ill on a flight to Moscow from the Siberian city of Tomsk. Physicians in Berlin confirmed the poisoning of yet another opponent of the Kremlin. And as of today, Navalny remains in an induced coma with his condition stable and improving. Arthur, to start us off, give us some background. Who is Navalny? So Navalny is the closest thing that Russia has to a credible opposition politician. He is popular. He has a lot of support, particularly among younger people. That doesn't mean that he could defeat Putin in a presidential election, even if he was allowed to run. But he is a serious person who's got a lot of support. And the reason that he is well supported is partly because he's focused very heavily on the issue of corruption. He's brilliantly used sort of social media and and kind of the internet more broadly to, to demonstrate the ways in which the people around Putin have in, been enriching themselves. And by going down that road, rather than going down a sort of argument about liberalism, which, you know, bluntly is just not very popular in Russia, Navalny has be, been able to get quite a following. And of course, that's partly why people such as Putin find him so dislikable. They can't uh, write him off very easily as a sort of tool of foreign powers. He's Navalny is relatively sort of nationalistic within Russia, 
but he does expose corruption and graft. And of course, the ordinary Russian who lives, you know, in a, a fairly sort of low salary and not particularly good uh, kind of social protections anymore, looks at these people becoming millionaires and, and you know, stealing the state's resources, and they can be motivated by that. So that, that's Navalny. Mm. And it isn't the first time that a nerve agent has been used on an opponent of the Kremlin. Uh, for example, the Salisbury poisonings of Sergei and Yulia Skripal in 2018. Just how common are these types of attacks, Arthur? Well, attacks on opponents of Vladimir Putin are, are very common. It's a dangerous thing to be. And, and obviously, the Skripal attack in Salisbury. Prior to that, you had uh, Litvinenko, who was another resettled uh, secret agent living in the UK who was murdered. Over in Russia, uh, you had a, another opposition figure, a guy called Boris Nemtsov, who was gunned down. Anna Politskaya, a famous sort of investigative journalist. So, you know, there are lots of people whose lives come to an untimely end uh, in, 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 uh, as opponents of Putin. But in terms of the actual the use of nerve agents, that is pretty unusual. Clearly, the Skripals is the big case. Uh, we've seen ner nerve agents used in the theatre of war in Syria, tragically. But to, to use a nerve agent to kill someone it is still a very, uh, or attempt to kill someone, is still a very unusual thing. Given, yeah, and just given the kind of audacity of using a nerve agent, can we assume that this is sanctioned by Putin himself? Or how high, high up the chain do these kind of uh, attempted assassination attempts go, in your view? Well, this is where it gets interesting. With the Skripals, because they were immediately in a hospital in the UK and, you know, the, the doctors figured out what was going on quite quickly, they were able to do the tests and confirm the presence of Novichok, which is a military-grade nerve agent used by the Russians. In the case of Navalny, you'll recall that he went to this hospital in uh, Omsk and his doctors initially would not release him to the German... Uh, air ambulance that was to take him to Berlin. Now, why is this? That's because after a couple of days, if um, the, the sort of urine and blood samples, are, no, it's no longer possible to determine exactly the nature of the ner nerve agent that you've been attacked with. And the thing about nerve agents is that there are those which are uh, solely available to governments and government agencies of the type of sort of Novichok and others. But there are many, many fairly common chemicals that could be used uh, to have this kind of uh, effect. So obviously, I don't know if that delay at the hospital was part of a dastardly plot, but it certainly means that we will probably never know the nature of the poison that, that attacked Navalny. And for that reason, we'll never be able to pin it uh, directly on Putin in, in the way that it was sort of possible to do that with, with Skripal. And, you know, the debate goes on. When you see these attacks, some people say, oh, it, it's not a, a centrally directed activity. You know, there are different factions at play in the Kremlin. But on the other hand, uh, someone as high profile and as significant, as, as we've said, is the, the most significant opposition politician in Russia, I think it's hard to believe that you would go to the step of trying to kill this person or certainly very clearly endanger his life uh, if you didn't feel you had clearance from the top. Well, Justin, last week, Boris Johnson joined a growing chorus of international leaders condemning the attack and calling for an investigation. What do you see the UK doing on this issue, if, if anything? 
Um, I mean, it's difficult to see what we can expect the government to do, which is going to go beyond the purely symbolic. Um, and, you know, these things can't be looked at in isolation. As um, as Arthur was saying, you know, Navalny is the kind of figure who could, you know, historically have been supported and promoted by all kinds of soft power, you know, in the way we sort of promoted democracy in sort of other countries, say, under communism. But we're cutting all those things, you know, from sort of foreign aid, NGOs, the World Service, foreign broadcast things. And they're not things that can be turned on suddenly. And, you know, we have a government which is constantly sort of chipping away and cutting back at the things which, you know, for slightly glib phrase, but have sort of made us a bit of a kind of beacon of democracy in the past. And, you know, so it makes it hard that when we do try and intervene on these things, we can just sort of parachute in and, you know, make a gesture or a tweet. But, you know, it feels like we're still in a, a sort of mindset as a country where probably, you know, post-Iraq still, there's no real desire for aggressive engagement with other countries and foreign powers. And, you know, as has come out in numerous stories over the last couple of years, a large part of the ruling class of this country is probably more pro-Russian now than it has been for, you know, probably within my lifetime. The Well, the government was so slow to release the Russia report. And yet on an issue like this, and with the Salisbury poisonings, you know, they've been very quick to condemn the Kremlin. And in my kind of years of working with the EU on Russia sanctions, at least since the invasion of Ukraine, you know, the UK has been one of the hawkier countries. But why do you see this inconsistency on the actual Russia report into election interference, and yet on the other hand, trying to condemn um, the Kremlin for these types of attacks? Yeah, I mean, the, the response to Navalny was, it was decent as, you know, we should say it was from the rest of Europe. I think, you know, France has said they'll offer Navalny asylum. Um, Germany obviously took him in for medical treatment. Um, but I think it was something that the government feel comfortable doing because it's a sort of theatrical, symbolic gesture. You know, it's a condemnation that Russia, you know, who assuming they had an involvement, would have known was coming. And they will respond to accordingly. Um, although, as as Arthur was saying before, it, it does seem interesting that they've been much more categorical in terms of denying things this time. They appear to have, you know, prevented any sort of, you know, blood testing or urine testing, trying to sort of stagger that process in a way that, with something like the Skripal case, there was much more of a, a sort of nod wink denial. Dominic Raab's, you know, sort of tweet in response to it was very quick. It was, you know, relatively unequivocal and forceful, but it sort of feels like a gesture that they would have known was coming. Mm. It, it almost um, feels sometimes like real life is stranger than fiction. Yeah. Uh, Julie, uh, Donald Trump's response or lack of drew widespread condemnation with his uh, opponent, Joe Biden, ripping into him, into, into him on Twitter. Um, could this affect the presidential race at all? You know, it was important that Biden called Trump out on this. I mean, his lack of response really was quite notable. But really for, you know, most Americans, you know, most are not focusing as much on foreign policy right now. You know, they're very consumed with the economy, with corona, with the protests. So while this will matter to, you know, foreign policy nerds like me and other people who are following it, for for most Americans, it, it won't, you know, it won't be a crucial issue. And I guess on that note, I mean, the whole question of, you know, Russian interference has become a polarized 
partisan issue. Um, and Trump has been trying to suggest that, you know, China is intervening on behalf of Biden in this election. Do you think that the issue of foreign interference um, or any closeness between Trump and Russia will matter to voters at all? Or do you think yeah, you know, it certainly will, and especially for Democrats who you know were you know noted the interference in the 2016 election. Really, were hoping for you know more of a um, you know more of a crackdown on that going into 2020. But again, Trump has been able to weather that pretty strongly. Again, suggests that China is helping Biden. So there will be attention to it, but it will, if anything, just kind of reify where voters already on are already already are on that issue. And uh, you know, again, it's it's something that I think a lot of voters feel is somewhat out of their control. And just to be kind of you know know what's happening in the background, perhaps, but something that there's just not enough proof around. Finally, last Saturday saw thousands of anti-lockdown protesters gather in both London and Berlin to demand an end to face masks, social distancing and the search for a vaccine. In London, David Icke addressed the crowd along with Jeremy Corbyn's brother Piers, while in Berlin, anti-corona extremists attempted to storm the Reichstag before being dispersed by police. Justin, what makes the conspiracy mindset tick? Do these protesters genuinely believe these theories or is it just an excuse for them to get out and cause disruption? I think we should be aware of generalising. So I think there's a few different things going on. There's a few discrete currents um, within that crowd. For a relatively small number of people that are attending these things, it's what you might call the Piers Corbyn tendency. Um, that's, you know, people with a full elaborate sort of insanely baroque belief system where all this stuff rolls together where you know 5g is connected to the freemasons to the illuminati to you know that anti-vaccine gilet jaune it's it's a huge sort of overriding diagram of this stuff for some it's that they've locked onto one overriding obsession of theirs now this could be vaccines it could be child safety you know it could be weird theories about the monetary system um, and the rest of it they sort of tune out there's also a large number of people in there who are basically low information fairly gullible and quite honestly they're, being, they're often being grifted financially and um, you know this is a lot of what's driving the the q system and you know a not insignificant number and i say this from sort of personal experience with friends of mine who've gone down this rabbit hole are basically mentally unwell and are being firehosed with misinformation by social media which is making them you know extremely extremely ill you know they're in a far worse position than they would have been otherwise but one of the things that unifies a lot of it is there's a sort of strange flippancy to these arguments which makes it exhausting you know you see these sort of insane beliefs kind of coming to the fore they're a huge deal you know even like sort of three months ago there's a huge amount of stuff around 5g that seems to have gone a bit quiet and it's very very difficult to engage with because you never really know how serious people are about this stuff or whether it's almost just you know something that's fun to kind of dip your toe into for a couple of weeks and then move on to the next theory a fortnight later and I think you you were spot on when you said you know rabbit hole because misinformation over an issue like 5G or vaccines seems to lead to this rabbit hole effect where um, you become exposed to more dangerous ideologies such as Holocaust denial or the mm. belief in a new world order. How does this happen? I mean, it's partly, I mean, you, this is obviously sort of your wheelhouse, but the, um, 
it's partly just the kind of information architecture of social media where, you know, on a really, you know, very basic sort of crude level, if you watch one video about, I don't know, hidden Jewish symbols being in the architecture of an airport in Washington, the next thing it will prompt you to watch will be a slightly more extreme version. And before you know it, you're 10 videos in and you're absolutely in the fever swamps of this stuff. Twitter, again, you know, on a very, very simple level, if you ever report and block an account, which is obviously fake, the first thing it will show you on the side panel is, here's some other accounts you might be interested in, which are all equally obviously fraudulent, you know, sock puppets, bots, whatever, pushing the same kind of information. So the whole network of this system is built up because their business model is people sitting online for as many hours as possible a day clicking on links. Um, And, you know, the business model doesn't care whether that information is misleading, you know, low quality, socially dangerous. It's just a scale model. And that's what it sort of pushes you towards. Julie, in London, some of the protesters had signs referencing QAnon, which seems to be um, a word that is grabbing the public imagination now. It started in America and has now obviously made its way to Europe, especially in the times of this pandemic. What exactly is QAnon? Yeah, QAnon is an internet conspiracy theory that started several years ago, and it's a number of loose threads of, of, of conspiracies. But the the central one is that there's a group of Satan worshiping um, Democrats, of business leaders, of Hollywood stars who are kind of engaging in this widespread network of uh, pedophilia and human trafficking, most prominently. And the QAnon uh, theory goes that Donald Trump is really waging a very strong but secret battle against this group and against their quote unquote like deep state of collaboration. So that's kind of it in its its crux. And again, it's taken a number of different forms uh, kind of through its lifeline, but that's that's pretty much where it is, even though it sounds rather bizarre. What are the implications for the United States and the world when, you know, the president himself has um, almost engaged with not only the QAnon conspiracy theory, but multiple conspiracy theories and disinformation himself? Yeah, well, this is a huge problem. I mean, Donald Trump has, you know, not uh, not responded to any prompts to distance himself from QAnon or to disavow any of their claims. You know, several um, Republican candidates right now are pretty vocal about their support for this theory. So, so it really is problematic that Trump is allowing that narrative just to move forward. And you know, in getting back to some of the, the other things from twenty twenty, you know, Trump was was also doing that really with his references to. Um, uh, COVID being you know, manufactured in China, really using that for his own kind of political purposes, but meanwhile, really resulting in you know extreme discrimination, harassment against Asians and Asian Americans by um, by stoking those kinds of conspiracy theories. the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. Arthur, what's your diversion choice of the week? Well, it's it's not a particularly uh, much of an escape from politics, but I've been reading this amazing book called Crucible by Charles Emerson. I recommend it to everybody. And what it is, is a history of the years from 1917 to 1924. And you'll notice, obviously, that that goes over the end of the First World War. And what is so interesting is that I think, like lots of people, 
we tend to think of history in these kind of blocks and you say, well, the World War I ended in 1918 and then there was a new world which started then. And what this book explains is, is this world of complete transformation from a time when you had a czar in Russia, you had the German Empire, the Austrian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, all kinds of structures that existed in the world to 1924, when when a completely different and new world existed, one which involved the Bolsheviks, it involved the, the fascists in Italy, it involved a new Nazi party. And, and it, this, this account of this, this transition has had me completely gripped. And, and I have to say that it, it also makes me think a lot about whether we're living in a similar transition. And obviously, I'm not going to claim that history repeats itself because that, that's simplistic. But we're, we're in a period when institutions that have been with us for decades and in some cases centuries seem to be shaking and possibly crumbling and we don't quite know where this is leading and 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 it's just fascinating to sort of immerse yourself in in another period when that happened what about you julie what's your escape route well, like Arthur, I've also been reading a political history. I've just been finishing Joe Lepore's book called These Truths. Um, it's one of the best histories of the United States that I've ever read and really just one of the best books I've read in a while. Extremely nuanced, extremely well-researched, and just extremely well-written. I mean, it was like reading a novel. And you know, I think in the U.S. right now, there's this sense that there's some kind of tension between you know, upholding our you know, stories of American history while also grappling with a very problematic past. And she just does an amazing job of weaving both of those things together and giving a much more nuanced story than I've seen before. What about you, Justin? Uh, well, selfishly, um, I should plug the release this week of my new book, uh, Nothing But A Good Time, The Spectacular Rise and Fall of Glam Metal, which is rather less highbrow than uh Arthur or Julie's reading material, but the uh, the main escape for me has been the return of athletics. Um, the Diamond League is back in a sort of limited form with sort of limited crowds and a bit of crowd noise dubbed over it. But the um, the main pleasure has been watching Joshua Chep, the guy, the Ugandan runner, who is basically shaping up to be the biggest star in middle distance running in the world right now. And he's uh, two weeks ago, he absolutely destroyed the world 5,000 meters record, which had stood for 16 years previously. Uh, If you've got any interest in just incredible feats of human endurance, um, it's on iPlayer at the moment. Um, It's an absolutely marvelous run. He's just, he's so, so great. And it's just beautiful to watch him in action. Uh, Mine is also going to be a sports one and it is the all or nothing documentary on Tottenham Hotspur because my my husband is a long-suffering Arsenal fan and he's taking great pleasure in watching Spurs doing even worse than Arsenal. Well, that's the end of this week's Bunker and thank you to our panel, Dr. Julie Norman. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Arthur Snell. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And Justin Quirk. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. If you back us, you'll get a shout-out in the show. And here are some now. Hi, this is Arthur with my thanks to Ryan S., Carlos Grande, and David Riordan. Thanks and best wishes from me, Justin, to Dee Dee Davis, Edward Lamb and Danielle Malour. And from me, Nina, it's thanks to Ben Woodsmith, Johnny Norris and Carolyn Richardson. 
See you next time. The Bunker was presented by Nina Schick with Arthur Snell and Justin Quirk. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison and the assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.